Hey there, folks. It's Roger here at There Be Giants, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Giant Talk. Now, you know that we love to get really interesting people on with us that talk around, not necessarily always directly to do with OKRs, but certainly around some of the aspects to do with OKRs, perhaps, you know, what needs to happen to create the right environments. And for those that have listened to us for a while, you'll know that we're huge, huge advocates of psychological safety and how that's so important to get the right conversations going around OKRs. And today, I'm super excited to be joined by someone who I met about six months ago and was sat next to at a, at, at a meeting we were both at, and we just got talking, and I just thought, wow, so interesting. So really, I wanted to get you on as a guest for quite a while, Tracy. so I'm glad we're here today. <laughs> so... For, for 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 all all of you joining us today, I'm joined by Tracy Tracy Berlin, who is uh, CEO of Organizational Genetics. Now, I love that name. I think it's I think that was the thing that made me go, "Oh, I want to hear more." <laughs> you know, when we met at uh, when we met that six months ago. So, why don't you share with us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about what organisational genetics do? Okay, thank you, Roger, and thank you for having me. So um, I'm a former HR director, worked as a HR director for many years and did love it, but hated the term HR, human resources. Right. Um, for me, people are people, not resources. Uh, a resort is a laptop, yeah. A and always hated that aspect of it, but loved what I did in terms of people. Um, and what was amazing um, was being able to work with organisations and go in and do that role and try and engage the uh -huh. DNA of the people and link the DNA of the organisation and what that was about to what is the DNA of the people. And did that for many years, had some great successes, uh, credited with solving the longest running strike in education history, won mm -hmm. a, a national training award, and then went into uh, an organisation that was one of the most toxic organisations I've ever been in. Yeah. Um, and sadly, that was, for me, an NHS trust. Right. Um, and on the face of it, the due diligence I did before I went there said you know it was a great organization it was a world leading trust just sorry just just for those who mm. are listening from overseas mm. you know i'm sure most people have heard of the national health service mm. um but a trust is usually a, a a hospital or a collection of hospitals isn't it mm. that are all run all managed together yes and the, the, the whole of the nhs is made up of a number of different trusts isn't it yeah yeah uh, and there, although I spent five years there, it was a constant battle trying to change um, that culture. Um, mm. And really what I should have sort of learned early on is that that culture was not going to change because it was about the leadership and the people who were in those roles uh, right at the top had a different view um, of how they wanted to lead and manage. Um, and that was they weren't prepared to change that. So it led to a, a really sad situation, which I'll come on later. But right. um, what it did is prompted me to set up organisational genetics as a result of that experience there. 
Um, so no, we try and work with organisations to ensure those types of culture that had a huge impact on that organisation and individuals within it doesn't yeah. happen elsewhere. And it, for me, it was also the opportunity not to use the term resources anymore. <laughs> um, so genetics, again, because it's about the DNA, that's why I came up with, with mm. the organisational name. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. You're right. Mm. It is about getting into the DNA of the organisation. So it sounds like your focus nowadays is far more on to uh, on prevention rather than cure. It is. Um, and, and for me, if we can get into the early intervention, it can stop the damage. Um, yeah. That can be harder to retrieve once that damage is, has been done. How do you then create the trust? It can be done. We have yeah. gone into some organisations where there's been some horrific instances um, and the trust has been at an all-time low and it's hit the front page of The Guardian, The Telegraph, all the major publications. Um, it's led to massive costly inquiries and investigations. Yeah. Um, and we have been able to turn some of that around, but it takes longer when it's there. So for me, the earlier we can get in, and work with organisations and use the expertise we've built up over the years, the better. Right. So coming back to the, the point of, or the theme of psychological safety, I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about, it sounds like, you know, you've been exposed to some mm-hmm. organisations that are quite extreme in sort of their ter- their level of toxicity. Yes. Which are going to be environments in which people mm-hmm. just don't feel safe to be open and honest Yes. Um, that's potentially, I suppose, one of the reasons why that um, sort of culture has been allowed to perpetuate, mm-hmm. as, uh, that people haven't wanted to speak up, have they? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> um, so you, you know, you shared a little bit with us about why you've wanted to pursue, you know, making psychological safety and building that level of safety up in organisations. Um, so talk us through, if you can, obviously without naming <laughs> the organisations, um, but talk us through, through a couple of examples of, of, of projects that you've worked on then. So a couple of projects. One of the biggest ones that I'm, I'm really proud about is one that occurred up in Scotland right. following um, an inquiry uh, led by John Stewart QC. Um, the outcomes of his inquiry were damning about that particular organisation. And one of the things he then recommended as part of his report is that there had to be some kind of process um, that resolved matters for what staff had experienced yeah. and, and gone through. And that was unusual, really, because... What a lot of organisations want to do is draw a line under what's happened and say, let's Mm. move forward. Um, And the problem with that as humans, we're not programmed that way. (laughs) Um, If people have been harmed and they feel they've suffered injustice, they need to see some kind of resolution to that to actually move forward. So we take the view, you've actually got to use some of the past to propel the organisation forward mm-hmm. and you can't just draw that line and, and, and move forward because it doesn't work. Um, 
Yeah, that just saying what you said there sort of takes me back to things like um, what happened in South Africa and, and to some extent in Northern Ireland where they had the, was it the Peace and Reconciliation yes. um, yeah. Councils? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and you're right. Yeah, all right, that's a fairly extreme example, but um, yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Sorry, go on. So, so yeah, and people, you know, people really just leaders just say, well, no, why, why dwell on the past if we dwell on that? It's not going to help people. But mm. actually, this project showed exactly the opposite. So we got the leaders there to listen and understand that. We got all stakeholders together to look at what needed to happen. And out of those discussions and those collaborations came what is now known as the healing process. Right. Um, and that healing process has never been done, as far as I'm aware, any not only anywhere else in the UK, but nowhere else in any other country. Um, and it was based on restoration. So we put together... Um, five elements to that in terms of the restoration process. And that was where there would be a panel of experts. um, And I sat on that panel. Um, It included another HR director. It included a very senior former trade union person. It did include a lawyer. It included a medical director and a former chief exec. And we heard from every single individual who wanted to opt into that process and put the trust in that process, what had happened to them. And then we offered them, based on up to five outcomes that they could have from that process. Uh Um, They could could just pick one that they would like us to consider or they could have asked us to consider all five. So the outcomes were they could get an apology from the board that had been put in place because the previous bit board had been removed, it was that damning and had mm. been that harmful. Um, so they could have a public written apology. Um, they could also have, um, if they'd been dismissed, um, mm. they could be reinstated back into the organisation so they didn't have to go down a tribunal route um, and incur more trauma by going through that process but also mm. costly legal legal fees. They could be not only just reinstated, if they felt unsafe going back into the department where they'd been, because those behaviours had cascaded down from the yeah. top. So some departments, again, were still displaying quite a lot of those behaviours. Right. So in some cases, they said, yeah, I want to come back, but I, I might like to be in a different department because – the relationships probably might never be rebuilt in that particular yeah. team. Yeah. So that was another option. Um, the third option was because there's long waiting lists uh, in this country for mental health support, quite a lot yeah. of individuals had suffered um, as a result uh, and it had impacted on the mental health. So uh, a, a private service was commissioned where they could get that immediate support and not have to right. sit on a long waiting list and get them back to where you know where they used to be. Mm. We one that wasn't an option. What we did say is anonymously we would be collating uh, a quarterly learning report 
for the board that had been put in place so it could go forward with some of those things that needed to happen in the rest of the organisation. And then the final one, I think, which surprised everybody that got approved was a payment. And the payment wasn't based on financial loss. It was based on us as a panel coming to the conclusion about how much harm had been incurred by that individual. So where a tribunal would look at financial loss, we looked at at harm and the harm that had been done. Um, And I know that's really difficult to evaluate, but, you know, we we did our best on the information that we had. Mm. And that Mm. payment could be anything within five brackets. So the bottom bracket was 0 to 5K. The top bracket was up to 100K. Wow. You would go above that in exceptional circumstances. Mm. Um, We didn't, but there were some payments in that top bracket that we felt we needed to make as a panel. And what that did is one staff said they felt listened to and heard heard for the first time ever that they'd been in that organisation. Secondly, it started to build the trust that something was happening and what had happened to them wasn't just being ignored. So the rest of the learning that needs to go on in that organisation, it started to put that trust in for them Mm. to start to listen and work together with the the U board that had been put in place. And I think it's moved things along much quicker. There's still work to do, don't get me wrong, Roger. Yeah, yeah. In the organisation. But the fact that it's done that, um, the feedback we got and that I got to see was incredible. So So there are two things that jump out uh, from from your story there for me. The first came quite early on, actually, which was – um, when you mentioned about leaders not being very good at doing anything but looking forward, they yes. don't want to look look backwards. Mm-hmm. In some respects, I've, I'm not saying this excuses yeah. poor mm-hmm. leadership conduct. I'm not saying that at all. But in some respects, I do feel a little bit sorry for leaders mm-hmm. who find who find themselves in a situation where they have to rebuild after. You know, yes. after after something's been decimated, like you've described there, because you know, leadership one hundred and one is about shaping the future, isn't it? It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is about yeah. looking forward. How and it's a question of how far you look into the future and building yeah. that future and taking yeah. people towards that future. So mm-hmm. I can completely get why mm-hmm. you really needed to hold the hand of leaders yeah. to kind of get them to think. Actually, mm-hmm. no, there's all this stuff we need to heal first before we can move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is because we all want to look forward and, and take things forward from that positive yeah. angle. Because, again, we've, we're programmed that way. But if we don't yeah. acknowledge, because one of the big things, the, the statements that come out after is we'll go forward and lessons will be learned. But yeah. if we want to just ignore that fact, how do we learn those lessons? Exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> just a, a throwaway comment, isn't yeah. it? It's a, it's, it's a pleasantry, you know. Yeah. It, it's almost as bad as you, when you hear somebody's passed away, it's their thoughts are with you. I mean, yeah. what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's not very comforting, to say the yeah. least. And um, 
yeah, I completely the lessons will be learned. It sounds mm-hmm. like a sounds like a politician, really, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it does, people don't trust it. So again, no, you've exactly. not got that trust. They feel it's a platitude. You know, you've yes. got to move on. You know, never mind what's happened to you. Move on. Go forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that struck me came towards the end, mm-hmm. which was where you mentioned that you know trust started to be rebuilt because people started to feel like they were being listened to yes and you know with the picture that you paint mm-hmm. i mean i know we're an okay our podcast we're okay our business i mean there's no way i go anywhere near that organization trying to do okrs <clears throat> because there's too much that's fundamentally broken about it at that point in time hopefully it could you know it sounds like it was turning a corner but um it kind of makes you know the lay person like me sort of step back and think how on earth can you fix that is there a point at which it's just too broken um but you know you what was really encouraging was that you said you could start to see the green shoots of trust coming back because people felt like they were being listened to yes and i think that's it and it's it's rebuilding on that now so they've got to carry on listening from the listening that we did as a panel because we're not, you know, employees of that organisation. So yeah. the board have got a major challenge in ensuring that they carry on doing that. Um, you know, some of it they're getting right, some of it they're still getting wrong, because I still get contact from the staff that work there now. Um, right. And, you know, desperate sometimes for us to come back there and do more work there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think the board wants to have a go at now doing it on their own. Um, but you know, what you don't want it is it could very easily go back if they're not careful. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I suppose so. Uh, uh, I suppose so. So uh, that's one example. Mm-hmm. I believe you might have another one to share with us. Yeah, and blown away by this one. Um, absolutely blown away. It's very early days still. Um, but we got contacted by one of the deputy ministers to start with from Ukraine. Ukraine. Uh, yeah, and they're in the middle of a war. And, and at first I thought, you know, this can't be right because surely they've got their hands full. Yeah. Um, and anyway, what they wanted to talk to us about um, was actually preventing corruption and fraud in their own country. Right. And I'm like, what, right now, when you've got the middle yeah. of the um, But, yeah, they still said absolutely even more so um, because while we're in the middle of the war, it's not just about corruption, but it is about the security of our funds and resources with all the different organisations we have in, in, in Ukraine are used and protected, and we need right. to make sure that that's not exploited. So, so the, making sure that the yeah. that 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 people weren't bending the rules in the chaos of war. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right. They right. did have some of that before, um, but what they felt the war created potentially could escalate that. Right. Um, so for them, it was still a high priority, which was for me. You know, our government, I don't think yet currently looks at it in that way and doesn't have the same no. attention to some of this. 
Well, God, don't, don't let's. Crikey, we could we could we could open a whole Pandora's box of um, mm-hmm. uh, of in, uh, of interesting accusations and, yeah. and charges that have been laid at the feet of some of our politicians. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's um, let's let's move swiftly on. So back to Ukraine. Yeah, they're, they're basically looking at um, three key conditions to sort of prevent that. Um, one is an official channel for reporting, um, right. and we do actually have tech that that does that. Um, right. So they were looking at a whole range of options around that. Um, they wanted to ensure that they had confidence that when things were reported, they would be actioned and something done. So where we have in the NHS, for example, the Freedom to Speak Up Guardian service, they wanted to know if that was working effectively or not, Um, and it's not. And I think that's because it sits within the organisations, not outside of it. Mm. Mm. So... That was very, very useful for for us to share that with them and to ensure that there was protection from retaliation. So them are the themes that we're having discussions about and and talking to them about um, and sharing our expertise um, from a range of experts that we have um, to help them move that forward. And for me, that is just inspirational because like I say when they're in the middle of what they're facing um you know the the first call with the minister he was sat in his basement because of the war going on overhead yeah um, and I'm like this is amazing um so to even be part of that in any small way we are really mm. really excited about and mm, feel really yeah I can imagine I can imagine so so the brief for that mm. assignment is mm. to help those that need to speak up because they've yeah. seen um, uh, corruption take place Yes, for them to feel safe enough yes. to speak and, up. And have a, a, an appropriate safe channel to do that. And right. that when that report is then sort of raised, one of the things with a lot of similar tech um, that is out there on the market that we have it can go into a black hole. It just ends up being a report and nothing is done. Yeah. Um, so with this, they wanted to make sure that they was aware that it was actioned and that it was followed up. And right. it was very, very clear what that action was and that something had, had been done as a result. They just don't want it to go into that black hole. That's right. some right. systems out there, just unfortunately, is that just reporting of and okay. what okay. you do as a result. Hmm? So just tell us a little bit about your technology that you have. So I was, you can, it doesn't have to just be report. You can share any, what I, I set hours up was not just about whistleblowing for me. Yeah. Having been a HR director, I think one of the most important communication channels when I started in the early days is the conversation that went on around the water cooler. Mm. Um, and that is such a major, major source of information that is not collected in any other way. Um, mm. It's like some people call it the office gossip, you know. The, yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of it is gold dust because what it does is tell you what your people really feel it's like to work yeah. in. 
yeah. that you just do not capture. And for me then, to terms of driving your strategy and what you might need to do, I just feel that is such key intelligence. So the tech was set up to sort of say, well, tell us what it's really like to work here and be anonymous, but then go a step further. So if you're feeling this, it might be in one particular area, but the bigger the organisation is, and especially if it's multi-site, there might be things going on on one particular site that are not happening on, a, on another. So you could have yeah. a, a really nice culture in one site, but on another site you might have a bullying culture. Hmm. So we get brought in a lot to look at bullying uh, again because we've got we've I've done lots of work and research in this field. And when you go into organisations and you ask them for the data, they can tell you what and how many bullying cases they've had. They can give you the breakdown by ethnic minority, um, but what they can't tell you is how it's happening and why. Hmm? Right. And how do you solve it if you don't know how and why? So the tech no, allows that individual to go through and be much more specific about how it's happening and why it's happening. Mm. And then the next level of the screens take them to how's that impacting? You know, is it impacting on your mental health? Is it impacting? Are you going home with an evening and not able to sleep? Um, and in some organisation, well, in any organisation, no one's going to be productive if they've not slept all night. But mm -hmm. the more, in terms of the health service or nuclear industry, for example, or driving industry, logistics, you know, that can be really unsafe if people have not slept and yeah. deaths. Um, so then that, for me, then becomes risk critical. And what we then do is then turn that into the organisation's risk register. So all the right. organisation sees, because we host the data, is those risks that they've got. Because what we don't want is them to end up, which is a, a, a very normal and key reaction for most organisations, is to say, right, let's get our HR department on it they'll activate the bullying policy, they'll activate the grieving <laughs> policy. And yeah. all that's doing, Roger, is pitting people against each other yeah. and actually creating yeah. more of that toxicity. More conflict, so yeah. Work. So for yeah. us, we want them to look at it as a risk and manage that risk. <laughs> right, right. Really interesting. So, I mean, what is it? that you think organisations are doing, which is undermining psychological safety, when they might not even realise that they're doing it. The, and, and that's true. Some don't. And when you go mm. in and just start to look and talk to them about a few things, they're, you know, how often the jaw drops to the floor and they say, I didn't even think about that. So one of the things, you, we, you know, a lot of organisations nowadays have the values on the wall. Yeah. You go in and you look at their HR policies with them. And their HR policies, legally compliant, great, but that's tended to be the focus to make sure they're legally compliant. Yeah. What, they're not, what they then don't do is reflect and build in those values into the policy as an, an over and above. Um, yeah. And some of them, you know, where we'll say like, well, we'll be transparent and we'll hear you and your your opinions matter. So one of the mm. biggies that you get when you go out and talk to the staff is they'll say, um, 
you know, I had a grievance. I felt really nervous about it because I'd never got a grievance, you know, never had a grievance before in my life. Um, and what they want to do is take someone to sit beside them who they trust, you know, who they can trust implicitly, they know well. But what all the all the policies say these days is it has to be a trade union rep or a workplace colleague. Hmm? And sometimes they want a t- they don't want a workplace colleague involved because then that mm. exposes more people knowing about it in the organisation. Um, they don't want to put a colleague in that position. So to bring a friend from home who's not in the workplace, they feel much more safer with that. Um, yeah. I agree. I don't think it should be a legally qualified person because then that will get it very adversarial. Uh, But for me as a HR director, I I used to always say, you know what, you can bring in who you want as long as they're not legally qualified because this is about resolving this, not, you know, going head to head in terms of conflict. So I used to break that rule and allow them to bring in who they wanted because if I'm not doing anything wrong and if everything that I do would pass the billboard test, do I Mm. really care? who sat at the mm. other side of the table with them. What I care about is that staff member feels safe to have that discussion with me. Yeah. No, I, I, I get what you I get what you say there. And, it, you know, your point about values mm. being on the wall, but not necessarily being reflected in policies and practice mm. and so on. I felt for a long time that there's a, a real damage to trust there because the uh, potentially because you've got the organization that's proclaiming mm-hmm. you know to follow these three four five values that are on the wall mm-hmm. um but then if people's experience doesn't match up with them that there's there's an incongruence then isn't there, there is. and uh, mm-hmm. and and so you, you you're claiming that but you're doing this yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not matching up. So I'm, yeah, that, and it might not be enough for them to actually sit there and go, "I don't trust you." Yeah, but it chips away at it, doesn't it? It does exactly does yeah. that because they just you know feel, can I trust them? They're saying mm. this, but they're not doing it. So mm. where they say, you know, feel free to come and talk to me. Can I really feel free to go and talk to them openly and honestly? Mm. It reminds me of. Um, my experience um, back in corporate days where uh, the organization I was working with had done a fantastic implementation of uh, three really strong values that landed very well and they trained managers, team managers, to do the training with their teams. And I thought that was a really good way to do it because yeah. it meant you weren't getting people in from outside who yeah. they who the teams had no relationships with mm-hmm. and you know they they could make it relevant to their particular area they could give it context which i think was important absolutely but then but i was also working at um i wasn't on the board but i was working with the board so mm-hmm. i had first-hand visibility of the sorts of behaviors that were going on at c-suite level and they were directly opposite, directly opposite to the values which they were expecting everybody else in the business to get behind. And I just completely lost all respect for them. Yeah, I really and did. And it, it, and it was a big part. It, it wasn't the only reason why I came to leave, but it was certainly something that made me weaken my sense of connection and loyalty to that 
to, to that organization yeah mm-hmm. and it uh, does and so it's it's damaging because you're then not getting that you know and your attrition rate is getting higher when you yeah. you know even if you look at it from a finance perspective and not a personal human perspective the cost you're incurring with some of the damage you're doing is, is huge um, yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah. so- I mean, for for uh, we've got. I feel like we've gone on quite a journey with mm-hmm. psychological safety, and you know, like if you think of it in terms of a spectrum, we've been right at the extreme end because of some of the um, uh, 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 examples that you've shared. So, for listeners who are in a position to of perhaps leadership and are in a, in a, in a position to be able to influence a level of psychological safety in their organization positively where could they start what could they consciously do to help start strengthening that okay so i think it starts with them at the top Hmm. first as leaders being authentic and asking themselves the questions that they'd ask staff so for exam- an example of that was um, when I went into the college that I'd had the strike, um, there was pressure on that, that leadership team by Ofsted because yeah. the college was three million in the red. Um, and what they said, Ofsted said, we're going to be coming in and you've got to turn this around. Also, even you, all you guys as the new leadership team will be removed if you've not changed this picture in three years. Again, just for listeners, Ofsted's mm -hmm. the education regulator, Mm -hmm. regulatory body here in the UK. Yeah. So, you know, they they were very clear with us that they wanted um, the three million deficit paid back as well as the Mm -hmm. college breaking even every year. Um, So that was huge and a huge pressure on, on the college and the leadership team. They wanted to see sickness absence going down because the levels were astronomical, as you can imagine, from how toxic mm, it had been. Mm. And they wanted um, to sort of see the outcomes in terms of obviously student uh, results happening. Yeah. So the very first board meeting that I went went into was, oh my god, you know, the absence is still high, Tracy. You know. Um, do we not need to just go out and and if people don't get their absence sorted, do you not just need to start sacking them? So I sat there and thought, hmm, interesting. So I said, all right. So I said, so that's an interesting question. So I said, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do you know what, what and what? So what would be the what would be the rationale for sacking them if they're genuinely ill? And they said, well, you know, they, they mustn't be following the policy. Well, I'm sure managers are not following the policy in the in the return to works. So we've got managers who are not doing this, and we need to perhaps give them a bit of a kick in to make sure the policy's yeah. worked. So I said, fine. So I said, yeah. So if people are not following the policy, you want me to sack them? And they went, yeah. So I said, okay, tell me what the policy is. And there was silence. (laughs) You don't know, do you? You do not know. And they went, and they just all put their heads in their hands and looked back up and went, no. And I said, so if we don't know it, we can't be following it. How the hell can we expect and go and give other managers a because they're not. And they just went, good part. And I said, that we've got to go out there and do what we want others to do. And until we're doing it, don't expect others to do it. 
Yeah. So I think that authenticity about what your expectations are is critical. Mm. Mm. And yeah. I really think. Mm. Yeah. And and that echoes with mm. um, what we uh, mm. say and mm. and in in many respects require when mm. we're doing an implementation of OKRs because we're talking about something that's yeah uh, it requires strategic direction yeah. and strategic influence the strategy is set by you know yeah. the, the, the the top level in in the organization mm-hmm. and they need to provide an example be role models of how they work they want the rest of the organization to work with okrs they, yeah. it's as simple as that it's as old yeah. as the hills role modeling is not it's not rocket science but boy is it powerful yes yeah, yeah. And I think Sorry. the second thing for me is there can be a tendency with all of us, and I can do it and I have to step back at times. You want to rush to fix things for people. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, you know, I think sometimes you get it wrong because you are rushing. But what you're then also doing is not allowing the teams and the people an input into that to also come to their own conclusions. And when people do that, not only do you build capability and trust, but one of the biggest feedbacks, because we ended up turning this college around in 18 months, yeah. and Ofsted couldn't believe it. That, you know, cause it and, and I must admit, even at the beginning, I thought, wow, three years to turn it around with what the deficit we've got and everything else. Is it going to be doable? You know, am I going to be yeah. have, have a foot up the backside from Ofsted and be going out the door? Uh, but you know it was a real a real question at the time and what happened is when Ofsted came in they went oh and I went well I haven't done no analysis yet of how I've just been doing what's needed I think what Mm. is needed and whether that whether any one of those things are the ones that made a difference I don't know but one of the biggest comments they said so Ofsted went out and did some roundtable discussions with staff and got yeah. their feedback about what they felt was happening. And they said the biggest thing that came through was the HR director made no decisions about us without us. Right. And and that for me is where we yeah, to do mm. that and come to their own. And they owned it more. And yeah. like I yeah. say, built that capability and trust as well. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Tracy, you've you've shared some fantastic stories with us and um i think um I'm, I'm absolutely certain in fact that our listeners will have found them super super uh, uh insightful um just like to say that if any of the listeners have heard a little bit of barking going on in the background one of my dogs is trying to get in here and i'm about to go and wring her neck when we've finished but anyway <laughs> so i apologize for that background noise anyhow that's just being authentic i guess isn't it, it is. <laughs> so uh yeah exactly so tracy thank you so much for giving us uh some of your time today and listeners i hope you have found that really useful i know i certainly have and i look forward to welcoming you back to another episode of giant talk very soon take care now thank you everybody thank you